Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, I'm your host Norm and this is the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast. And on this episode, I'm going to talk about some games of late and this is a designer series episode and I am pleased to have on the series David Thompson. We're going to find out his board game origin story. Cardboard Conjecture is proudly sponsored by Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street in Saskatoon. They are the winner of the Joe Schuster Award for Best Comic Book Store in Canada, and they were also nominated in 2016 for the U.S. Eisner Spirit of Comics Retailer Award, presented at Comic-Con. Amazing Stories' amazing collection of comic books, board games, puzzles, and collectibles can be found in their store or on their new online website. And we're back. This is Cardboard Conjecture. And uh, I am so pleased, before we get into games of late, I'm so pleased I'd like to introduce our guest for the Designer Series episode, uh, David Thompson. David, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. I appreciate it. Um, uh, the, um, I, I can't wait to get into the second part when we talk about, uh, you know, your gameography and your history, uh, in the, in the hobby, because, uh, I've got right there, I got a whole bunch of your titles and, uh, me, I had mentioned before, I'm a high school teacher and I teach history, social studies. And, uh, another friend of mine who I've brought into the hobby of gaming is a history teacher and he's, he has his master's in curriculum and I have my master's in, in, uh, instructional design. And when we play a history game, we nerd out on the game. And then we also nerd out as educators going, hey, how can I bring this in the classroom and blah, blah, blah. And your games have been a topic of conversation for many hours in between us. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Yeah, I love it. I love I love the sort of merging of the two worlds, right? The history and the game design. So yeah, that's that's. Yeah, thanks for that. I appreciate it. Oh, awesome, awesome. Uh, but games of late. Uh, what's uh, let's start out with you. Uh, what have you uh, had on the table? And I had jokingly mentioned every time the designers come on, it's like I just play my stuff. And I mean, that's I get it. Uh, but if you have kids and you play games with your kids, that's that's applicable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, well, so I'll I've got a few things, and I'll move through these quick, and then I'll kind of settle on one that I want to spend a little bit of time on. So. Um, Next month, I'll be meeting up with a, a couple of buddies of mine. So when, in, in the very rare instance, you know, I get together with a couple of gaming buddies and we got to pl- get to play stuff I want to play, right? When the planets so the Altus, align. Yeah. The, yeah, the planets align. And it's once a year for like one weekend. But um, the games that I've, you know, that are my top, my must playlist, um, some of my favorites are El Grande, which is a classic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> my favorite new to me game last year was Tyrants in the Underdark when they re-released the the new like version of it right yeah the Gale Force 9 yeah yeah so what's funny is I was living in the UK I distinctly remember this I was living in the UK at the time the game was released and every single time I would go to a convention they'd have it set up on one table there was never an opportunity to play it and I just kept looking and wanting to play and wanting to play 
And then finally, when they came out with the new edition, I said, I'm just going to buy it and I'll play it with friends on Tabletop Simulator, right? Because I, I yeah. like to own the games that I play on Tabletop Simulator, right? Like a good, I like a good boy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but man, it is, it is awesome. It's like everything I wanted, you know, wanted it to be, I was hoping it would be. Um, and then the last one was my favorite new release of last year, which is Brian Burrow from Osprey. So I should mention, I should, I should do, do right by this, right? So for El Grande, that's published, uh, that's designed by um, Wolf Crane Kramer and uh, Richard Ulrich. Uh, I think it's still probably published primarily by Hansen Fluke, um, but there's, you know, yeah. all the different localizations and stuff. Tyrus of the Underdark was designed by um, uh, Peter Lee, Rodney Thompson, and Andrew Verne. And it's like you said, it's designed by or published by Gale Force Nine. And then Brian Barreau is published by my good friends at Osprey. I love Osprey and um, and designed by Paris Sylvester, who's a brilliant designer. Um, so, yeah. So that's yeah. those are the things that I'm about to play that are all things I love very much. So I'm super, super excited about that trip. Well, the, the common theme across all of those, and I think that's just just what I love most in gaming, probably from a from what I like to play the most is those are all like area majority influence kind of games. They do it in different ways, but yeah. but yeah, I love it. I love that so much. And um, yeah, Tyrus of the Underdark, the deck building um, sort of core to that is really, really fun. So now I will say when I first played El Grande, so this is probably, I first played it probably seven or eight years ago. I, I thought at the time, well, why did anybody make games after this? Because perfection's already been reached. <laughs> I still kind of feel that way. I mean, it's just so incredibly good. But, um, yeah. but yeah, yeah. So, but like you said, now, very, very, most of the time, I spend the vast majority of my time when I'm not designing either testing, you know, or uh, playing with my kids. So I have uh, three kids, 13, 11, and, and eight. Um, and the 11 year old and the eight year old will play any game with me anytime. They love to play games. Yeah. That's their their favorite thing to do with that. My 13 year old's a little bit more difficult. She's gotta be something she really enjoys. And her niche is like the social deduction kind of games. So we play <laughs> coup a lot in my house, a lot. So uh, just, just because of that, I've been playing coup a lot. And then with my 11 year old and eight year old, We've been playing uh, a pre-production copy of a game I've got coming out soon called Dire Alliance. Uh, so we've been playing that a lot. Nice. But but the thing I want to spend my time on is the thing the kids love the most is Dungeons and Dragons. Okay. So I grew up on Dungeons and Dragons. I was a D&D player. Um, you know, that's that's my sort of where I came from. Nice. And when the girls, so my 13 and 11 year old are girls, when they were little, probably about six or seven years ago, the first exposure they had to role-playing games would be My Little Pony role-playing game. So I bought it and ran them in that and they loved it. And ever since then we've been um, role-playing, you know, we've been playing uh, role-playing games. Um, about four years ago, I got the D&D starter box and we played through that. We played through the, the, the newer, it's called the, I think it's called the Essentials. Essentials, yeah. Essentials, right? Which is fantastic, right? If you're, yeah. Even for experienced gamers, it's a really well done set, I think. But well, um, and Lost Minds is such a good mm -hmm. campaign story, even for experienced players, because it's yeah. so well written. Yep. Yeah. Totally agree. Both of those. Don't buy the Stranger Things box set because no. it is not good. It it's is not good. It's nostalgic, right? I mean, <laughs> it's, that's yeah. yeah it's yeah. a cash out. Yeah. Yeah. But um. But so they the 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 issue that we have is i was always a dungeon master and i take dungeon mastering like i like making my own stuff up i just don't have the time to do it right mm -hmm. and so 
Um, they want to play more than I have the capacity, the time to, to <laughs> invest into it. So that's the dilemma we always have, right? They yeah. want to play more than I can. So I was recently away for a weekend and I came home and my 11 year old had a copy of the new, well, I don't know how new it is. I think it's relatively new. Strixhaven yeah. book, right? Yeah. Holy cow. So That's she, the college, right? It's the college. Yeah. 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 The Hogwarts so kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And she was at the store with her mom and she was in the, the book aisle and she saw it. And my wife said that uh, she just sat in the floor and started reading it. And it's like, we have to own this. So she just had it as a present. And it was basically the, the you know, the implication was, you're going to run a campaign of this for us, right? <laughs> yeah, the hidden and, contract. Exactly, we'll exactly. just slide this, you sign it when you're ready. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I, you know, I grew up in the time of like first, first slash second edition, right? Like that's the- AD&D second from. edition yeah. here, yeah. Yeah. Thaco, Thaco. Thaco, that's right, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and so and so, I know all about Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance and mm-hmm. Spell, all that stuff, right? But but what is this Strixhaven thing? Like you're you're asking me to run you in a campaign, I gotta learn it and all of this stuff. So I gotta tell you, man, I cracked this book open and I didn't know what it was. I didn't know, you know, anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't even know the book existed. And so it's, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's based on a Magic the Gathering setting. I've heard that their, there's been this Venn diagram of layover because yeah. of Hasbro's, you know, IP yep. control. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That makes yeah, sense. It, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I'll tell you, I think because it came from, this is just a guess. I know nothing about magic. I've played yeah. like one. Me neither. Yeah. Yeah. I played like a half game of magic in my life. No, I have nothing against it. I've just never, no. that's yeah. just never been a thing for me. And so I crack it open. I start reading it. And it's like, this is really, really, really well done. I mean, fantastic you know, just, and and it feels so fresh and interesting and new. And it's this, I'm not a Harry Potter fan, but everybody else in my family is. Yeah. And so it's, it's this weird combination of it, it kind of appeals to that. And it touches this new setting it, for, for us, this new setting for Magic the Gathering. And then of course it's fifth edition that we, you know, it's, so that yeah. you got the familiarity, but it does this incredible job of, it's got like four, four adventures. It takes characters from first to 10th level four adventures, each adventure is a school year, right? Nice. And it has so much incredible, like, um, character narrative building, both from a mechanistic perspective, like providing some structure, mm-hmm. but just just the narrative in like developing relationships with other students, your extracurriculars, the jobs you do on campus. And I mean, yeah. when you're a kid, when you're, when you're in elementary school, you want to be in middle school. When you're in yeah, middle school, you want yeah. to be in high school, right? And so what it's doing is it's appealing to their Harry Potter love, to their, you know, I want to be in university and do all the stuff that university kids do. Uh, and when you're so, an adult, you want to be a kid. Yes, yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. That's exactly right. So yeah, I, I can't tell you, I don't think I've been this excited about playing Dungeons and Dragons nice. in 20 years, maybe, right? So yeah, it's it's super cool. Yeah. The, uh, it's now again, it sounds like you're you're in the same um, uh, belief as me is that the 5e is so allowing for I mean, there's a rule set, but the way I see 5e, it's that, yes, there's rules, but I will always side on the sto- on the on this, you know, I was I will always favor the narrative. Yeah, if the yeah, st- yeah. it's just yeah, it's- I, it's really interesting. I mean, D&D role-playing games, role-playing, yeah. this has nothing to do with 5e. Role-playing games in general are just, 
what you make of them. And I tried to describe, I can't even remember who I was having this conversation with, um, about the distinction between board games and role-playing games. In board games, you want to have rules. You live by the rules. Oh, right? yeah. You want to understand the rules, got to play by the rules. And in role-playing games, it just doesn't matter, right? Like, you know, they're there, there's a structure there. Um, and it's funny, my own sort of like personal journey with role-playing games, because as I said, you know, that's what I grew up on. Yeah. And so I think I started playing role-playing games. I started with, with um, uh, Palladium slash Rifts, but I mean, I quickly went into D&D and that's where I really grew up. And, and when I was young, it was like, you know, 11, 12, 13, of course, you know, you didn't, you didn't live by the rules because you didn't really interpret, you know, you, it wasn't that big of a deal. You just played the game. I had this period where I was, you know, maybe about 20 years old, going to college. I was in the Air Force at the time, and I was really seriously into it, probably to a detriment. Like I was, I, we're playing by the rules, and oh yeah, you know, yeah, very, very adherence to to the to the, and it was probably, um, I don't remember if that was like late second edition or maybe third edition was coming out or something, but. It was in that time where everything was a little bit more crunchy, it seems like, than it is now, right? Yeah. And so now I am absolutely, and this is part of this, is because I'm only playing with my get kids, right? Yeah. But I mean, the rules are there just as a general guide. We, yeah. I'm constantly, you know, just, ah, that's not fun. Let's just do whatever we need to do. Part of me is thinking, yeah, yeah, like the lines on the road where I'm from. Yeah, no, they're just suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah. the I think what you're hitting on, because I also have a theater background, um, is that importance of the magic circle. Mm. That, that yes, there's yeah. a rule set, but what do we as a collective and our contribution to this narrative are allowing or not allowing, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. You're exactly right. Yeah, what's what's the the group's sort of, uh, the group perspective? And, and I guess it does leak into board games some. When you think of like when you're playing a narrative game, like a, a time stories or something, mm -hmm. if you have a group for it, you're like, eh, let's not, let's not do let's this. Fudge. We don't let's want to restart. Let's yeah, fudge yeah. it. Yeah, 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 that's that's true. That's true. And it is very group dependent, right? I've, it, I mean, I was even thinking about this. I, I remember distinctly one time being a convention where um, somebody was taking code names to the absolute nth degree of seriousness about you have to put your finger on it or it doesn't count. And I was like, I think you're missing the point of code names, but yeah, you're right. It is, it is very much the magic circle. Yeah. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is proudly sponsored by Dragon's Den Games, located in the Louis VIII Mall on 8th Street in Saskatoon. Swing by Dragon's Den Games and let Darren, Al, and the awesome staff help you out in search for great board games, role-playing games, miniature systems, and all of the related accessories. Be a part of their gaming communities that have scheduled events in their great gaming area. Dragon's Den Games, Louis VIII Mall on 8th Street in Saskatoon. It kind of flows. I had a couple things on, on my uh, uh, games of late, and uh, I'm going to follow into that narrative with uh, Arkham Horror, the card game. And uh, it's been on, it has been on my, um, on my radar for, Oh man, a while. I think when 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 it came out, I was never a big Cthulhu fan, and um, uh, and I and there was always that tendency not to get into it because I to me I could see that as being going, 
oh man, if I like it, oh, I'm in a rabbit hole that can go on forever, right? So there was this kind of much the same with, with war games, right? It's like, oh, if that's an itch that I'm not aware that I have, I don't want to scratch. You know, it's like, I don't even want to scratch that thing because it might be, oh, there's a good itch, right? And uh, yeah, I, I have Marvel. I had the, um, I have the Lord of the Rings, and uh, so in my head, I've got the two ends of the spectrum. I find the Lord of the Rings to be nightmarishly hard. Um, and I'm not a big deck builder like we, we talked about magic. I, I, I've never played magic. So I'm not that deck building kind of person. Um, and then all the way to the other end with Marvel Champions, which is cotton candy compared to, to uh, Lord of the Rings. So this one drops right in the middle. And thematically speaking, um, the... Uh, I, I'm seeing this Cthulhu story more of kind of a, a Indiana Jones meets, a, you know, American horror kind of thing. Right. And uh, it's only big boss stuff at the end where, where this, this uh, IP comes into play, but I'm, I'm having so much fun with all this. Even when I get destroyed, the story is so much fun. It's like, yeah, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have put that down. I should have, you know, just decision-making. So I'm having way too much fun with this game. Yeah, I've, I've played it before. It's, it's great. I haven't played it in, in, in a while now because um, the main folks I play with, I, I don't live near them anymore. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I agree with you. It's, it's that sort of like the narrative that develops organically through the game is fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. The, um, uh, I mean, that's my polite way of saying I suck at it right now, <laughs> but, uh, I bought the, um, uh, a friend of mine, Ryan had told me, cause I had bought the core, the, the original core box, um, before fantasy flight started putting out this, you know, this, this new production methodology of let's put it all the booster packs in one thing, like they've been doing for Marvel. And, uh, so he told me, yeah, wait, 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 wait. Cause they're going to put Dunwich in this entire box. So I picked that one up and, and I'm just about finished the, the campaign in the core box. And I'm, and I'm looking at, cause I'm, we're on Easter break and I'm looking at that, that, that campaign going, you, you and I will be meeting in about a day. <laughs> If you like the content we're creating and the podcast episodes we're producing, please leave a happy rating on the podcast platform that you use. This would be such a great gift and would also help others find our podcast when they search for board game podcasts. And if you have the time, check out our new YouTube channel where we have new content every few days. Just search Cardboard Conjecture on YouTube. Thanks, eh? And we're back. This is Cardboard Conjecture. We're getting into the topic, which is the designer series. And I have with us uh, David Thompson. David, again, welcome back. And uh, let's get straight into this introduction. Um, the first question I always have, I love James Lipton and his, and his interviewing style, if no one knows, inside the actor studio. And uh, he always likes to establish the foundational context of who you're speaking to. And, that, and I'm the same way as a teacher going, you know, nature, nurture, where are you from? How'd you grow up? Yeah. So I, uh, I was born in Savannah, Georgia. So Southeastern, you know, part of the U S uh, I grew up there, um, left when I was 18, joined the air force, did the, did the college thing. Um, I was 
probably a relatively rare thing where like I was about 14 or 15 and knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. Like I had it planned out very meticulously. So I knew I wanted to, to join the Air Force and go to college at the same time and get a degree in a certain thing and have a um, intelligence background in the Air Force and then transition into my post Air Force career. So all that went according to plan. Everything goes according to plan until you get married and have kids and then your life like <laughs> changes. So that was that was all that that sort of uh, trajectory. So yeah, I, I've, I've kind of bounced around since then. I've lived, um, when I was in the Air Force, I lived in Nebraska. Uh, I moved to Alabama in the US. Then I went to the UK for a while and now we're back in Ohio. So um, yeah, we've, we've bounced around quite a bit uh, with work, right? Yeah. Work is, my work is taking us kind of all over the place. Fortunately, my wife is, um, she's like the master of, of rolling with it. So she's, she's taking care of the kids, but she has her photography business and, you know, she's mostly a, a person about service. So she does a lot of volunteer work. And just now with the kids, with COVID being over ish and the kids being out of the house, she started working for the school district here in Ohio where we live. And she's like, the happiest she's been oh, in forever. But she's found her calling, I think, in life. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yep. The uh, okay, and I didn't put it in the show notes, but I, I I'm I'm always uh, drawn to the the board gamer origin story, just like the superheroes. Yeah. Where, yeah. where what's what's where you know where does this fit into your life? Yeah. So it's interesting. You know, we we talked about it a little bit before when we talked about games of late and, and the role that mm-hmm. that role playing games have had. So. Like I said, I grew up playing, you know, RPGs, right? Um, and I also played uh, like tactical role-playing game video games. So, like, if folks remember um, Final Fantasy Tactics, Ogre Battle, Ogre Tactics, those kinds of games, I never really went past PlayStation, the very first generation PlayStation. That was a kind of my cutoff point in video games. But those were sort of the two formative gaming experiences I had. Um, Later on, I, like I said, I you know joined the Air Force in my like late teens, early twenties. The gaming group that I got, I was part of. In, in retrospect, we played a few things like Blood Bowl. Um, we played uh, Mage Knight, and I don't mean Mage Knight the board game. I mean Mage Knight the Clicks game, which is like the predecessor to Hero Clicks. If people yeah, yeah, are familiar yeah. with that, right? So That's old school, very old school. And so I did not really know that board games existed, right? Like I would go, you know, stores that sell comic books and RPG stuff are almost always gonna have some board games back mm-hmm. in the 90s, early 2000s. But it was like these mammoth, like um, Twilight Imperium. And I would look at them like, I don't really know what that thing is. Too, yeah, too yeah. much. Too yeah. much, yeah, it was just it, was just, it was like adjacent to the hobby that I was in and I never yeah. really explored it, right? Um, and so it wasn't until, you know, I was, Later on in life, I, like I said, I was getting married, I was having kids, and uh, I was actually listening to a podcast called The Secret Cabal. And the reason I was <laughs> listening to them is because when they first started, they had role-playing game content. And so I just wanted to listen to RPG content while I was running. And um, they talked about board games. And when they were talking about board games, it was they were talking about like just things like Descent, right? That had a lot of crossover with yeah. the, the RPG world that I was in. And I was like, oh, these, what I now, the term that I would use to describe them, like Ameritrash or Ameritrash style style games, thematic games. I was like, that sounds interesting. I should should try something like that. And I had also at the time, independent of anything else and not really understanding what board games were, 
started trying to design a game um, that would go on to become a game I, I had published called For What Remains. But it was like this post-apocalyptic game that took a lot of influences from D&D and Final Fantasy Tactics and, you know, the, yeah. the Clicks games and stuff, that kind of, and now we would know it as a sort of hybrid board game, miniature skirmish game. But at the time I had no concept of what that even meant or what it was, right? And so because of the secret cabal, I, I sought out a group and um, a board game group that was local to me in Alabama, met up with them, uh, got into it. I think one, I can't remember, but I think one of the very first games we played was probably um, Star Wars X, like X-Wing, mm-hmm. right? So kind of placing that in the time frame of probably 2011 or so, um, 2012, I don't remember exactly. But uh, so from then on, it was a very quick journey to discover that it wasn't really a Maritrash style games. No, I, I kind of explored all over the place, um, ultimately leading me to my, my, what I would consider my sort of happy place, which is like the more, like we talked about before, like the area majority sort of Euro yeah. influenced games, right? That kind of stuff. I'm a huge fan of what we call Waros, so like Waro, war game Euro hybrids, right? Um, but it, was, it didn't take long for me to go from playing games and kind of like nurturing this, in, this initial design I had um, to exploring designing, right? Within a year or so, I was really trying to do a lot more design work. And uh, I was super, super fortunate that in 2014, I had the opportunity to move to the UK and I moved right, it was like a little suburb of, of Cambridge. And Cambridge has, so first of all, the UK has an, a fantastic designer playtest community. I think oh, cool. it might be one of the best, like biggest organized in the world, um, Playtest UK. And there was a, a, what, a chapter or whatever you want to call it in Cambridge. And it was led up by two super prolific, successful designers, um, Brett Gilbert and Matt Dunstan. And so they welcomed me into it. And, you know, I immediately started going to those meetups in I think we moved to the UK in June of 2014. And by September, I was going to my first <laughs> spiel, right? And like pitching yeah. games. And, and in oh, retrospect, pitching games, nice. Pitching games. And, yeah. and, and I took the game that would become Undaunted. I took Switch and Signal. I took For What Remains. Uh, I think I took, so three of the games that would eventually become published was at that first spiel in 2014. So it was a very quick sort of, you know, um, transition. From nice. playing to designing, yeah. Now, is there because you had mentioned your your career history um, in the military? Is was there a you know a frame? We hear a lot of the times where where the military will use simulations in order mm-hmm. to um, uh, you know bridge that that gap of experience to theoretical. Was there a little bit of that in your brain as you're looking at this hobby? As, for me as a teacher, I can never look at a board game to play it. I look at it to play it and go, how can I use this in the classroom? How can this help learning, right? Yeah. And you, you must look at things from that analytical, um, um, sis, you know, systematic point of view that you've been trained to break things down and, and go, there's my objective. There's my purpose. There's my tactical, you know. Yeah bonuses or, or, you know, resources kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. I, so when I first started designing, probably the answer is probably not as much as it is now. So, you know, when I first started doing it, it was other than the very first original ideas I had for like the games I just mentioned, switch and signal and stuff like that. It was more of like, it was this period of what I would say I was trying to like find myself as a designer. Right. And so like 
my first games that, that, that were actually published in that sequence, because anybody that knows anything about designing and having a game published, there's, there's almost no correlation between what gets signed first and what gets published first. Right? Like this is weird inverse correlation sometimes. Yeah. So although I was taking those games that would eventually become published back in 2014, the first game I had published was called Armageddon, which I pitched at Spiel 15 and came out the next year. So it, even though it was much, a much later pitch, it came out before those. Um, and I don't, I, I, you know, Armageddon's a, a good game and it really, um, a lot of the credit to that initial con concept goes to my design partner, Chris Marling, because he was sort of the, the person that, that thought up of the idea and, and asked me to work on it with them. But that game and then the next one I had published called Orc Olympics, I think that they are very different in DNA from yeah. what I've sort of become later on, right? Um, and that's, that's neither good nor bad, but it, it just is what it is. And I think that period of like 2000, 17, um, six, 18, something around there is when I really started kind of thinking more um, like analytically, like what you're saying, like, well, what, mm. you know, what do I want to be a designer? What, what kind of things do I think I'm good at? That kind of stuff. And once I got to that point, and, I, and it was also the same time I started delving into the world of war games more, um, I think that's when I started seeing more bleed over between my my personal interest in military history, my professional career in my game design, you know, sort of whatever you call that pseudo career. Yeah. And, um, and so my job, and it's always been my job, you know, my, my day job has always been intelligence, right? So I'm in an intelligence world and in that world, we, you know, we go through like, you never have perfect information, right? Like mm -hmm. that's the whole point of intelligence. And you, you're, you're doing what we would call like a deep, we have an intelligence issue like you know what's the question right what you know whatever you do, the thing you're trying to quote unquote solve and you deconstruct that right you're like okay well how do we deconstruct this how do we understand the component parts to it to answer the question which turns into a model right like there's a model there that you're trying to build out and you're trying to do some sort of like predictive work on it and there is a ton of overlap between that sort of structured analytic approach to an issue and game design right mm -hmm. there can there can be and, it, and that's certainly the way i approach it and that's especially the way i approach it when i'm doing um my war game design work right so you know I, you're familiar with pavlov's house right yeah we'll take something that's that exactly you, what you play, yeah, right yeah so let's take let's just kind of riff on this for a second as an example so in pavlov's house uh, so in that, there's a series of games I've designed called the Valiant Defense Series. And, and the thing that ties them all together is you take the role of like a small scale defense and you're defending a, a certain point against attackers, right? So that's the thing that links them all together. The first one I designed in that series was called Castle Itter. And it's just, we could talk about the, the story of that. That's an entire podcast yeah. about that story. It's wild and crazy. But, but the, the actual defense is just a small group of people defending this sort of medieval castle during World War II, right? And yeah. they defend it over a day and they're by themselves and they successfully defend it. And so that's that's self-contained. The story is outlandish, but the, the, the defense itself is self-contained. After I did that game, I was looking for another one um, that I thought would be interesting to do. And I, and I settled on Pavlov's house. And if you read like the high, you know, the, the sort of like overview of it, or if you read like the Russia or the Soviet propaganda about it, it's a small group of guys defending a single place in, in Stalingrad for a few months. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, that sounds amazing. Well, it's, it's not true, right? Like 
what actually happened is they had all of this other sort of like things that were, con- that were contributing to them to help them. Yeah. And so to, to your question, like, how would I equate this back to my day job? The question might be something like, well, how were, you know, 60 Soviet soldiers able to defend this strong point out in, you know, Stalingrad for three months successfully? That might be the starting point, right? Yeah. And then you start doing some sort of like structured like mind map or something. And you're like, wait a second. Well, how were they able to, you know, resupply? How were they able to communicate with all of those individual component parts, right? And you start pulling those strings. And that's how I learned myself. Oh, well, it took air defenses and artillery and logistics and all of these other things to, to, to contribute to that success. And the end result is, you know, you have this research process, you have this mind map or this structure yeah. you know, model. Um, the one thing I will say, though, is the thing that, that separates me from some other war game conflict simulation designers, I think, is that oftentimes the the typical approach will be to try to f- develop some sort of like objective model about the answer. Yeah. And what I'm looking for, and this is a nuanced difference I know, I'm really looking for more about the emotional experience I'm trying to evoke for the defenders in that situation, right? So if I'm like the, the one I was doing recently uh, in this series, Lanceworth Ridge, I don't really care so much like exactly how they defended it. I want you to, how did the defenders feel while the defense was going on, right? The anxiety, the tension. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, And again, it's a nuanced difference and maybe it's debatable whether, you know, you can achieve that as a person playing a game versus mm-hmm. the one living through it. Yeah. But, you know, that that sort of feeling of desperation needs to be in the game, right? It can't just be some sort of mathematical model of a situation. This episode is supported by the incredible team at Breakout Escape and Board Game Lounge here in Saskatoon. Using industry-leading technology, Breakout Escape Rooms are all 100% uniquely designed by the team to ensure their patrons have maximum fun while staying safe. As well, they are a fully licensed board game lounge with over 400 titles to select from to ensure fun for every gamer new and experienced. Be sure to check them out at BreakoutSask.com. At Breakout Escapes and Board Game Lounge, they believe that life is more fun when you play games. We're kind of already transitioning into the second part, uh, which is the gameography. And um, I didn't want to interrupt anything because I was just soaking it up. This is awesome. Um, uh, but you you had mentioned that you started, um, and from my notes here, 2013-2014, uh, and uh, I see uh, Switch and Signal, Ride the Rail, uh, Skirmish Tactics Apocalypse, um, and then you jump into uh, um, 2016. Now, like, you've identified that the inception of the idea doesn't necessarily reflect the release date because you had said that Undaunted had been one of the originals that you'd pitched. And, and as we're looking, that's a, that's a 2019 release. So um, from 2016 to 2019, I see Quest for the Open Tavern, Platoon Command, Armageddon, like you mentioned, uh, Allegiance, War Chest is the one that um, I... That was the one that caught my attention to you because you had mentioned Secret Cabal and they had started talking. Hey, there's a friend of ours that put out a game called War Chest. It's awesome. And I right away, uh, like many who you know consume in the hobby, they were one of my podcasts. And I, of course, <laughs> if Jamie says it's cool, you gotta go get it. <laughs> and um, so yeah, that that's what hooked me into, into um finding you on the landscape. 
And from that point, um, it was that whole kind of like someone who sees things the way I do, but yours was coming from the professional side of, of like you had mentioned with intelligence and mine from the educational side, but we're both wanting to look and solve the same questions, right? Um, you have a different clientele than me. Um, so that's what drew me in. And then um, the, the Orc Olympics, um, as we're going through, this is what catches my eye a little bit. There's that, there's that, um, there's that little kid in you that always wants to pop out because I see, you know, platoon command, Armageddon, war chest, pap, and then Orc Olympics, and then, <laughs> or, you know, all these other things. And then, and then what was the uh, sw switch and signal? That's the train, the, the cooperative mm -hmm. train game, right? Yeah. So out of nowhere, I get these, these outliers in regards to this, this flow that you have. Um, do you, out of all those, anything you want to talk about? Because you had talk, mentioned a lot about, you know, Armageddon and, and all these, um, these background games to where you're getting at now. But, um, but yeah, before we get on to the Normandy, because I think to me, that's one of those tipping points for you in regards to the hobby, seeing your games as, yes, that whole... I like to say it when a designer pops on, it's that pay attention to, right? It's like, oh, somebody's just put out a game. It's I, in my head, I've already purchased it kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so, um, yes. So it's funny is like every game has a story, right? Every game has <laughs> yeah. an origin story and you could go- Every child and it, has it. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and, and every one of these is my children. Yeah. I will say this, like in, this is a, this is a byproduct, maybe unfortunate byproduct of Board Game Geek where once a, entry is created is almost impossible for the entry to to get um, merged or deleted or anything right because there's so many remnants in the database of ties so so games that are in my sort of ludography if somebody was to go and look at the games i've designed like you mentioned skirmish tactics apocalypse so that game eventually became for what remains Mm -hmm. But there's the original, like, as I made it for a print and play game, yeah. right? You can find it. And the same, you've got Switch and Signal, and then a separate entry for Switch and Signal, right? You've got yeah. the 2014 print and play game that I made available, and you've got the 2020 release. Yeah. And they can't, like, ne'er shall the two meet in the, in the BGG <laughs> entry. So people get confused, right? Like, people will be like, oh, well, you designed games or in 2014. Or like, well, I, you know, it was available as a print yeah. and play. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but, like... You know, Orc Olympics was born out of the idea of I wanted to make a a um, a game about kind of like a really quick fantasy football, like the actual fantasy football thing that sports nerds play, yeah. right? And over time, this idea of like an NFL style fantasy football game turned into a game called Orc Olympics, right? It's just the it's just the the way things happen. Um, one thing we should do really quickly is mention. What my sort of brother from another mother co-design partner trevor benjamin who's a fellow That's, canadian right oh yeah so, yeah yeah he um he he and i have done a lot i mean a lot of these are ours together right and mm -hmm. and when i think hey i'm going to work on a project i immediately think unless there's a really really good reason not to this is probably something i'll work with trevor on other than my solo war game stuff right? yeah um so that that's Trevor's influence on that original football game is it got turned into an Orc Olympics game. So it's, yeah, a little bit more uh, interesting theme for a broader audience, really. Yeah. But it, it, and here's another example of that, right? So, you know, War Chest, certainly War Chest and Undaunted are the games that we're known for. Um, 
Undaunted started as a game called Platoon Command, which, you know, is again in my lootography, right? Yeah. 2016. Um, it had, you know, from from when I pitched it in Spiel 2014 to, to releasing in Gen Con 19. So that's five years. Um, it went through an amazing sort of journey of public getting to publication, right? Which is, again, a whole nother podcast. Uh, but War Chest, which was released the year before Undaunted, right? So it came, War Chest comes out in 18, Undaunted comes out in, in 19. The entire concept to create War Chest was Trevor's idea to take Undaunted and turn it into the sort of like elegant minimalist, Poker no shit. output randomness version of Undaunted, right? And so, but it releases first. <laughs> so it's just another example of, you know, where games come from, the origins and the publication timelines and all of that stuff. But um, yeah, I mean, Again, you know, I sort of live in, 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 I would say, three worlds, right? I live in my solo war game design stuff, which is usually me, and I'm teaming up with some sort of historical expert, yeah. right? Then I live in the world of, of the things that Trevor and I work on together, which are sort of these, you know, Euro sort of war gamey hybrid kind of games like the Undaunted Normandies or the War Chests or Dire Alliance. And then anybody else that I might team up with that could be an outlier to those, that kind of world. Right. That's kind of the, the area I live in now. Yeah. The, um, I've, uh, because I had mentioned before, um, being, being uh, an adult that likes to have a whole bunch of things on the go. Uh, I also have a, a, a like a, a career in the music industry since I was a, a young, a young audio um, kid. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, writers who are like that where they'll they'll write by themselves for themselves they'll collaborate with others for you know their their thing that they've created and then they'll go do side projects yeah which yeah. are just like hey i had a bug in my brain that i wanted to explore kind of thing yeah. so i totally yeah. understand yeah yeah and i mean to to give folks an understanding of like what that means to live in those different worlds simultaneously i kind of view the 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 solo war game stuff is almost indulgent, right? And what I mean by that is if I'm, if we're working on a game that is designed for a, a big publisher in a broad audience, like an Undaunted, we have to think through things like what, what does the first ever play of the first ever scenario feel like for players? Because if you look at every picture that's ever been posted about Undaunted, 97% of them are scenario one. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, what yeah, people yeah. play. And I mean, that's yeah. the world, that's the world that we live in in board games, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know what percentage, but it's probably a very high percentage of people who've only ever played scenario one. And so as a designer, you have to think about that. Okay. This game has to, you know, and, and, and truth be told, if I was redoing it, I probably would change, change scenario one, right? We probably would have introduced a little bit more to give as people as far as the scaffolding taste. goes and, and to expose yeah. what this game has yeah yeah yeah. exactly yeah so it's so it's something you have to you, you just have to keep that in mind in today's like a showcase game world, scenario right? yeah yeah now total totally different let's take a very niche game i designed solo war game called by stealth and see right so this is about as niche as you get right you you're taking the role of these italian human torpedo operators so so you you know for people that don't know and this is the most of the world um, during World War II, the Italians sort of invented this a, a commando approach where they would take a, a submarine, they would sneak into a harbor, um, Gibraltar being the most famous, but not the only one. Uh, they would release these three torpedoes. Each of the torpedoes were ridden by a couple of operators. 
They would skim the water or go just below the surface of the water, sneak underneath a British or, you know, an allied, but it was always British uh, ship, warship. That's what they're trying to get to. They would detach the front of the torpedo. They would attach it to the ship. They would swim away and hope that it blows up, right? Uh, they, in, in the port of Alexandria, they were actually successful in essentially knocking out two battleships. So if you can imagine six Italian commandos taking out two British battleships, like that might be the most disproportionate attack in human history, right? <laughs> but um, but to, to back to the point, the first scenario, because it's based on the history, right? Every scenario is meticulously based on the actual historic situation, right? All the sh correct ships are there, etc. This is a game that's, it's like a campaign game where when you're playing it, you advance the technology of your torpedoes, your operators get more skilled, et cetera. Again, tracking along with what happened historically. So in the very first mission, you're playing with these prototype torpedoes. Oh, wow. And, and the, the Italians probably, it's probably fair to say that they dealt more with technical problems of their own equipment than they did fighting the British, right? So the first scenario is brutally hard, brutally hard. And a lot of that is because of the faultiness of the equipment. And I could not have gotten away with that if it was a design for a broader crowd, right? Because it's yeah. kind of frustrating, right? But, but I know two things. First, it's self-indulgent. So I wanted, I wanted to model history. Um, and I, the, the solitaire wargaming crowd I know is much more forgiving and will continue to play the game than the broader board game hobby. Right? Yeah. And so as a designer, you just have to kind of know, you have to know your audience and you have to know like designing for them is different. Right? Yeah. This might be a, a, um, a weird uh, analogy, but it just popped in my head with that, what you said about, I did it because I wanted to do it. And uh, what popped in my head was uh, for Bruce Springsteen fans, Bruce Springsteen's, you're a fan if you have the Nebraska album because that was just Bruce and an acoustic and a mic and that's it. It was right. just about the music, right? Wasn't an E street band. So that's, yeah, you're you, that it's like, you're, you're making your own Nebraska album, right? Yeah. 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 I totally and get I'm, it. it. And I'm blessed, right? this isn't my job. So I'm not, when I'm, when I'm making a game, it's not about like how much can it sell? Because if I was There's worried no about that, risk, I wouldn't be yeah. making, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't be making, you know, war games. Right. So, yeah. And, that, and speaking of, of that, uh, that particular situation, when I, t when I teach that, that area of history, I, I always, I have a couple pictures of, I, I throw it up there, you tell me what this is, and they're looking at it, and they're, no way, there's no way anybody, insane person, I'm like, that ah. insanity breeds creativity, right? That's right. So, that's right. Um, yeah, no, when I, uh, and again, um, uh, there, and that's the fault of, the small releases, it's so hard to find. <laughs> mm, right. Yeah. Like yeah. For, for me, that's uh you've created another unicorn hunt for me going, okay, board game Oracle. I think there's a copy somewhere in Taiwan that I got to get my hands on. <laughs> um, cool. So yeah, let's, uh, let's move through um, uh, the second phase. Uh, and, and I mean, we could call this, we could call the second phase, the, the COVID to present phase. Cause um, I think the interval is that 2019 period where all of a sudden uh, 2020 uh, you have uh, um, North Africa came out. You had mentioned um, switch and signal had a, uh, a, a brush up kind of thing. Um, uh, Europe divided war chests. Uh, as I'm looking at this, I can see um, 
there, you, there's a passion connected to work because there's always like, oh, we're not done with this yet. Here's another. Oh, no, we're, we're not done with this yet. We love this game. Here you go. Here's some more. Um, talk to me about uh, this, this second phase because I, I see Stalin, undaunted Stalingrad there. Yeah. And uh, that was when I started doing my homework. That was what made my eye go, wait, 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 wait. There's another one? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Um, resist. Talk to me about resist because that's a solo, another solo play, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So all of those, I mean, let's so, you know, when we, it, it, man, each of these, again, every, everything has a story. Everything so has, believe yeah. it or not, you know, believe it or not. So the, the origin story of Undaunted, right. I, I go to, I go to Spiel, like I've mentioned a couple of times, 2014. And um, I met with a, a guy named Duncan Malloy, who was just, just starting up Osprey's board game division at the time. Now it's hard to believe, right. Cause you think about Osprey and they do, They've got a lot of really amazing games and visually they're just always stunning and they're they're really not that old right as a publisher they haven't been around that long and so they were just getting their feet under them which is part of the reason it took so long to get from you know five years to, to publication but what's interesting is when they when we finally settled on the contract for undaunted it was i think it was i think it was spiel 2017 not only did they sign undaunted normandy but they actually went ahead and commissioned Undaunted North Africa then. So we actually had in the contract and we delivered the design for Undaunted North Africa before Normandy even came to market, was even oh, published, wow. right? So a lot of people don't know that, but you, you assume, okay, you're gonna work on an expansion or sequel in this case, based on you know feedback from yeah. folks or whatever, but that's not what, the, what, that's not what it was. So the recent release of reinforcements was our first opportunity to really go back and and toy around with Normandy and North Africa based on feedback from players mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but Osprey is absolutely, it's, it is a fine oiled machine when it comes to commissioning stuff and staying on schedule. There's no better publisher I've ever worked with. So Stalingrad, I think was actually conceptualized probably around the time North Africa came out. I have to go back and look at the schedule, yeah. but I mean, many years ago. Yeah. And so for years we were working on it. And it is it is the game that by far we spent the most time on because it was originally conceived as a destructive style legacy game, right? Like you were gonna be stickering things and all of that. And um, Trevor and I went into it, like that's that's what we were gonna design, you know, this, this big sort of destructive legacy, on Dante game. I have to be a little bit careful because I don't know exactly what I can say, but I, I, think, I think I'm pretty free to say most things. Um, but fortunately, what happened is, and we were always a little bit concerned about it, right? Because what we didn't want to happen is people could only play through it one time and they'd have to rebuy it if they wanted to experience it again. Because mm -hmm. oftentimes what happens in Undaunted is you want to play the same scenario multiple times to get a feeling for that scenario, yeah. right? So, or to finally um, win the scenario. Right, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, so fortunately, Osprey made the, the fantastic decision that it was going to be whatever you want to call that resettable campaign, blah, 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 right? Whatever term you want to call it. And it, and it for, for players, it was the abs, in my opinion, it was the absolute best case scenario because what had happened was Trevor and I designed the entire game thinking it was going to be legacy. So it carries all the yeah. sort of stuff that legacy would give you like this, this rich narrative, this everything impacts itself. You know, you have um, tile, like the, the, the actual battlefield is gonna be changing over time based on what happens. So it's this incredible, you know, rich narrative that's building. 
but you can just replay it again when you're done um, because they've they've added so much material, so many cards and so many tiles and stuff. And just, just to give people a sense, if you've played Undaunted, you, this will really resonate, but even people that haven't, just the sheer component size. So Undaunted Normandy uses these um, modular tiles for the battlefield, and there's 18 of them in there. And there's 22 in North Africa. Stalingrad has like 130 or something. I mean, it's insanity, right? Because it it has to represent the, the entire area and it has to represent the entire area in multiple different configurations. Oh, wow, so, cool. So, and in, like the card number is like triple or quadruple the normal that you would see. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it is a beast. And, and we jokingly say, or I did at all, I think Trevor agrees with me. It's like the game that almost killed us because the number of possible permutations of things that can happen based on what happens in each scenario it's it's literally exponential yeah and by the end like my ability to map it all out because that's one of the the tasks that i had taken on it's not like nothing ever the flow chart was just yeah it was insanity so so yeah, um, so yeah, that's that's where we are with, with Stalingrad. <laughs> I can I can see the sticky note on the side. Don't ever do this again. Yeah, yes, yeah. It's like okay, <laughs> yeah. We yeah. we jokingly used to say years ago, we're like we're never designing another scenario game, and I was like, well, that that ship has sailed because it's yeah. like the ultimate ultimate scenario game. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it, we're in a super sort of blessed situation where people like War Chest and people like Undaunted, and so. You know, we get to, we've gotten to, to make expansions or sequels for them, and it's it's been really rewarding. My kids also love playing War Chest, which mm. is great because there's not much you can get that's better sense as a designer than your kids genuinely independent of you wanting to play the game. That you oh, kids are the 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 harshest critics. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's like I love you, Dad, but it's like, oh no, this is gonna hurt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it's always, no, it's tell always you. good though. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they'll tell you quickly. It's something. Yeah. You know. And 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 I'll just say really quickly on the topic of of Switch and Signal since we've mentioned a couple of times. Yeah. You know, it the origin story for Switch and Signal was I wanted to to design a train game for my parents to play together. Oh. Right. Like that's they're big model railroad people. Um, and they don't they're not really board gamers, so they do like Ticket to Ride. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, 2012, 13, whenever it was, and I started working on it. Um. That's what I set out to do. I wanted to make a co-op train game that was, you know, family strategy level that um, kind of evoked that feeling that you get with a model railroad, like the the individual sort of like tactical switching and signaling and stuff. So that's what that was the origin story for that game. Cool. So that was cool. cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to plant a seed in your brain because uh, it's been going on in my head. And I've mentioned my son, Daniel, and Daniel has Down syndrome. And I love playing games with Daniel. And the teacher in me will never say no to a game he's interested in. I'll just scaffold the learning for him. Yeah. And uh, he and I, I as well, uh, I, I DM some, uh, some D&D campaigns. And he's always like, Dad, Dungeons and Dragons. And he loves throwing the dice. And I thought... Uh, and he loves flicking games. Um, and mm-hmm. I thought, I need to make a D&D flicking dice game that Daniel can play. And uh, so, yeah, there, I'm going to plant that seed in your brain. And, and, I, and, and, I, and I know that you're the kind of person who'll be like, no, 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 I'll forget about it. And then uh, later on today, you'll have a coffee and go, huh, a crokinole <laughs> kind of D&D game, but you're using dice instead of the, the, the cookies. Hmm. Yeah, there we go. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. All right. So, uh, 
now that I've planted that seed, I, I feel like Johnny Appleseed here. Um, uh, resist. Yeah. 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 Because so resistance. The history teacher in me is freaking out because this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so resist is an interesting one. Um, the publisher for resist is Salt and Pepper, and they have his, their Spanish publisher who's historically done localizations of games. Right. They haven't done their own publications. They've they primarily done a bunch of. Um, Oh man, I'm blanking on the name. What's button shy? They've yeah, they yeah, done yeah. a lot of button shy localizations, and um, and they did a localization for Watergate. Which, if people haven't played Watergate, it's one of my all time favorites. Fantastic! It's awesome, awesome, awesome. Mm -hmm. I am I am a sucker for you know. We, we originally talked about my area influence games. The other thing I love is short, tense, uh, car driven games. So like Watergate, Thirteen Days, that type of stuff. Oh, so good. But um. So they reached out to, to the um, the main guy there, Gonzalo. He he's in addition to being you know the owner of the company, he also has his own website where he does game reviews, and he's a historical gamer. And so he had played a lot of my war games. He had played um, Pavlov's House and reviewed it and stuff. Re really liked it. And so he reached out to me, asking if I would design a game for them. He wanted to do their own, you know, them being the publisher, yeah. their own English Spanish language edition. And he basically said, for all intents and purposes, you can do whatever you want, right? Yeah. There's no real constraints. I mean, they, they historically it's your, it's had your done, domain. Have fun. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and clearly there was a desire to make it historical since we had that shared interest in historic, in, you know, and they had always done mostly card size, you know, smaller games. So, so I went into it with the, the sort of constraints of, you know, historical game, try to make it limited to cards for components. And I thought he didn't ask for this, but I thought it would be nice to pay homage to that relationship by making it something that speaks to the Spanish history, right? Mm -hmm. So a couple of thoughts came to me immediately about what the game could be about. One was La Nueve, which is a Spanish unit that was um, incorporated into a French unit in World War II. And they were part of the same French unit that, that liberated Paris and stuff. So that's an interesting unit of history. Um, but the other one was the Spanish Maquis. And, and what I thought it was interesting about that is when, when people hear the word Maquis, they typically think of two things. They either think of the French Maquis, right? Mm -hmm. Or they think of the Maquis from Star Trek. <laughs> those, are, those are the two Maquis. Right? Yeah. The, funny you say that because I just finished reviewing Maquis and my, and my kind of funny bumper tag was, and I'm not talking about Star Trek. And then exactly. I finished by going, but yeah. Chakotay is cool. Chicote is cool, yeah. In that in that game, I mean, let's let's real quick aside. People yeah. should check out that if you're a solo gamer, not a solo war gamer, solo gamer, man, what a good game, right? That's yeah. awesome. It is, yeah. It's Jake that's the designer. Jake for, Staines, right? yeah. Jake Staines, yeah. yeah. Jake is Jake. I There's remember so much tension in every decision. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember when he had that out for print and play originally. That was good then. But the published version is so nice, so good, so slick. So, yeah, yeah, yep, totally, yeah. highly recommended. Um, so I thought, you know, let's tell the story of the Spanish Maquis, right? Now, when when it came time to work on it, um, I, I don't have a ton of game design time, right? So I have to be very careful about what I'm spending my time with yeah. and stuff. And I kept, unfortunately, I kept going back to Gonzalo and saying, "Look, I just don't have time. I'm maxed out. I've got these deadlines. I've got to meet." And, commission games, but all those stars aligned and I had a sort of 
you know, window of opportunity to work on this. And I emailed two, because as we talked about, I like working with design partners. And I emailed two of my buddies. One was Trevor, who we talked about, worked with, mm -hmm. you know, Warchast and Undaunted. And, and the other was Roger Tankersley. Now, we haven't talked about this game at all, but um, Roger and I co-designed a game called Sniper Elite, which is a hidden movement um, game that's based on a video game, right? So a video game called Sniper Elite. And Roger and I have known each other for many years. Um, we worked together in the UK, though we're both Americans. Uh, we were part of the same gaming group, not design group, like just yeah. get together and play games for the fun of playing games. But he would play test for me. And so, and, and he is a huge hidden movement fan. Like if, if I want to play a hidden movement game, he's the man to go to. So, um, so we're good friends and we're coworkers and all this stuff. So I thought, Hey, what, one of these two guys might be interested in working on this project with me and funnel, they were, they both were. So, so the three of us got together and we said, okay, well, what is this, you know, what's this game? Is this going to be about? It's going to be about the Spanish Maquis. And I just assumed we would do it about the Spanish Maquis role in World War II. But um, what we quickly learned, and I think Roger was the one that sort of nudged us in this direction, it was more interesting to talk about the Spanish Maquis and their role in their fight against Franco liberating, trying to liberate, you know, Spain mm -hmm. after the Second World War. And, and, you know, if you look back historically, we're talking about a group of people that were largely left. They had come out of World War II certainly hoping, hoping that, the allies would help them in their fight against Spain. And that didn't happen, right? They were left basically alone to, to fight for themselves. So this is a game that's telling the story of, you know, you sort of managing your small uh, group that's at the beginning of the game, this hidden cell of Maquis trying to fight against Franco. Um, and there's a tension in the game where there's an inevitability to the fact that you, you're ultimately going to have to end the resistance, right? The, the Maquis were not successful against Franco, yeah. but how, but how much, how much success can you have is the question, right? And so there's this meta tension across the, the totality of the game of like, how far do you want to push it? So there's just sort of like big scale pusher luck part because each, each individual round is you have a handful of your Maquis, you play them to try to, to accomplish these missions. But the core tension of the game is every member of the Maquis has two sides. They have a hidden side, which is you stay, you stay hidden. Yeah. You don't reveal yourself to the, to Franco's forces, but you're weaker or you can reveal yourself, right? You become, you, you know, you openly reveal that you're this, this resistance fighter. You're much more powerful. But once you do that, you typically don't ever come back. You get, you get discarded and you're sort of like, exposed uh, there are a couple of ways in the games to bring that back that's very very far and few or few between so uh, you know we're, we try to be very careful so that people know what they're getting into it's not a deck building game at all it's probably closer to say it's like a deck destruction game right yeah yeah or deck management um but yeah it's this tension about when do you play your maquis how do you play them trying to overcome the mission trying to keep civilians alive so there's a lot of of different tension points in the game. Um, yeah. And then I would be remiss to not say that, you know, that the artist for is Albert Bonte. So if you've seen the art, you already know it's incredible. He's a Eisner um, award nominee for his comic book art. Just brilliant. So yeah. it was an honor to, to work with him on this. The um, I, I, I'm not big into the, the comic book art. I have a lot of friends that are, and I respect it. And uh, the, 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 the box cover art, um, yeah, that definitely reflected that kind of um, 
uh, comic panel mm -hmm. that you would see in a newspaper of the era. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah, uh, yeah, to me, I'm a big fan of from this from the observable psychology point of view, or just just you know social psychology of how many clues did you put into that image to help bring me into that 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 I that I consciously am aware of, or that I am you know of course subconsciously not aware of, but you know um, that art style, even with Maquis, I had mentioned that mm -hmm. I don't know how to, I don't have the words to describe the artistic history of it, but that style reminds me of the time when I saw these pictures when I was younger and these pictures were of this era. So that's my kind of um, line, through line to connecting with it. And I, and I noticed that a lot with, uh, with Resist that, yeah, I, I was drawn into that era of, of the timeline strictly through the artistic choice of style. So, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think we're, well, I know we are super lucky that, that Albert's working on this because um, I, I think a lot of people are going to feel the same way you do. Like, I don't know why, but it definitely evokes that the time period, right? I can't articulate it necessarily yeah. in words. The color palette is, is sort of just, I would say unbelievable, just amazing color palette. Um, and what's an interesting choice that we made consciously was when we and this is this is pretty common right so as the designers we'll come up with all this stuff and we'll do an art description now sometimes the publisher will then flesh out the art description sometimes they won't but but in this case roger was was kind of our lead for the theming right so generally speaking for resist the way the, the sort of division of labor none of this is set in stone but generally i would sort of come up with gameplay ideas Roger was doing a lot of the fusing of the gameplay ideas with some theming and Trevor was doing a lot of like refinement and development work. And I mean, we all bled over each other, but that's generally how it yeah. worked. And so Roger would do a good job of providing some art direction. And we would say things like, okay, uh, whatever this character, Diego, Diego is a, you know, he's a, he's a banker when he's, when he's hidden, but when he's revealed, he's a whatever, right. You know, he's, he's doing something crazy. And um, so we would just use like one or two words to describe them. And oftentimes that was like a profession or something. And there was an early version mock-up of the cards that was gonna include those descriptions, those, those literal descriptions. And I think Albert's the one, the artist who was gonna include that. And we're like, no, 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 no. This is way more evocative and way more interesting if you don't include the literal description of the people, because I think it just helps the player build the narrative by looking more closely at the art and saying, oh, what is this? Oh, what's he doing? What's happening here? Yeah. So, yeah. I, yeah. yeah. I've, at least for me, I'm able to provide a deeper context of understanding with less information mm -hmm. that somebody mm -hmm. gives me than if you start to script it for me. Yeah. 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 Let you let the players fill yeah. in the, the gaps. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. I, I can't wait to get my hands on, on a copy and, uh, and give it a play. Um, uh, yeah, anything as we're winding down, anything else you want to touch on in regards to uh, what's on the horizon? Uh, what's what's uh, as you had mentioned, games that are in the shoot that you yeah. can or cannot talk about, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've talked about you know, we just obviously we just talked about resist that'll be that'll come to game found. So just in the world of like as a designer living in the in the the um, let's let the fire truck go by. <laughs> <laughs> in the in the world that you live in as a designer it's you know it's part of the, the 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 world is is kickstarter and part of a straight to publication i've yeah. never 
interactive with GameFound before. So Resist will be on GameFound in May, and it, I'm just ex interested to see how that goes. I've never experienced it before. Um, I mentioned in passing Dire Alliance. That's a game that's coming out from uh, Blacklist Games, who approached us, me and Trevor, specifically because they like War Chest and, and Undaunted. So it's a it's our first what I would call like miniatures heavy game, oh, right? So it's huge yeah. into, into minis, and it's this horror themed game that uses some of that. It shares a lot of the same DNA as War Chest and Undaunted. And so my 11 year old daughter is obsessed with this game. I mean, obsessed. Like she she wakes up Saturday morning and she comes down the stairs and she goes, "Daddy, let's play Dire Alliance." Like she's just beyond obsessed. So that's nice. cool. Uh, so so that's coming soon i mentioned sniper elite yeah. uh designed with roger so that's like that should be shipping imminently yeah. that was a kickstarter i think last year um we've talked about soldiers soldiers is that's the third in your series is it not yeah yeah so soldiers and postman's uniform is out it, that's out now yeah the next one that's on the way now is lanzareth bridge okay so yeah so lanzareth ridge is about uh the first day of the battle of the bulge and that's, you have this um, like 20 man intelligence and reconnaissance platoon that, because there's there's 40 million Battle of the Bulge games, right? Like every other war game is a Battle of the Bulge game. So, you know, the, the my interesting part is taking one little tiny piece of this mammoth battle and, and let's just go crazy with mm -hmm. it. And so that's what Landsworth Bridge is all about. It's this, you know, 20 man intelligence reconnaissance platoon. And this goes back to the thing we discussed earlier. The question is, how can 20 men hold up an entire Panzer division for a day? Now, and again, that's what that's what the U.S. sort of like almost yeah. propaganda would say. That's not exactly what happened. You know, there are a lot of things that conspired to hold up this division. But they really did, 20 guys really did basically fight off a battalion, about 500, quote unquote, paratroopers, yeah. you know, German paratroopers for better, the better part of a day. Now, again... You know the, the the game the model you know the the game kind of sort of addresses this. They were remnant troops and they were replacement troops and they were older men and younger boys and they weren't really paratroopers even though they were called paratroopers. And so there's a lot of reasons they had horrible tactical leadership on the German side. That all of those things conspired to allow these Americans to be so successful. But I don't care what you say. Twenty guys against five hundred. Oh yeah. Is a pretty, you know laudable thing, right? Yeah. So so yeah, Landsworth Ridge. Um, is and it's at the printer now so it'll be you know a, a probably a few months um i'm excited about that 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 is the first game in the series so so a couple of the games um castle litter and soldiers of postman's uniforms an artist by the name of matt white has helped me with some of those so he's done some of the card art but a lot of the board art and stuff is i did it and it's okay it's functional mm -hmm. but the art for um landsworth ridge is done by who I think is the most underrated artist in gaming. His name is Nils Johansson. He's I a, write that um, down. Yeah, he is. He is unbelievable, criminally underrated, and the 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 game is just gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. It's it's got to be one of the most beautiful boards I've ever seen. Right, I'm clearly biased, but yeah. he's it's remarkable. Um, and I think that's everything. The only other thing that I can talk about. I think that we haven't already discussed is um, it was recently announced that Jeff Engelstein and I are going to work together on a game called Chung Ha, which is about the the Ming voyages um, nice. of the 1400s. So yeah. you, the player will take on the role of Chung Ha. It's a solitaire exclusive game. 
Um, the thing that I'm so excited about, so Jeff, Jeff approached me about it. He had already sort of conceptualized it. So, so kudos to him on, on sort of the initial bit of it. But the thing that I think is going to be really interesting to solitaire historical gamers or just solitaire players is I often categorize solitaire games as one of two large, you know, general experiences. It's either a, a puzzle game that's kind of solvable, right? Like, yeah. okay, I've, I've solved this, this solitaire game now. I've kind of done it. I've moved on. Or it relies on a lot of, of randomness and uncertainty to create an interesting game. Um, but I think that one thing that, that Jung Ha seems to do fairly successfully is when you go, when you're going out on these voyages and it's kind of, it's kind of structured in this campaign sense, right? There were seven main voyages. You don't have to, seven voyages mm-hmm. in the, in, the, in the, um, the treasure voyages. You don't have to do seven, right? Depending on how well you do, you could do fewer or less or more, but um, you generally have like these goals you're trying to accomplish because the emperor was sending you out to do a specific thing, right? But, and you don't, we don't even have to do that. You don't have to accomplish a thing. Generally, what'll happen is you will, you'll try to do this general goal, but then after that, it's very sandboxy, nice. right? It's this, this very like sort of open sandbox experience for a solitaire game. That's I don't know that yeah. I've seen that, right? Yeah. And so I'm excited to see what the response is from players um, on that. Nice. So. Well, I'll have an opinion, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that's awesome. Uh, just before we, we we transition out, I want to I want to plant another seed because the uh, the the Canadian in me is is hoping that someone will do a game on Vimy Ridge or Passchendaele, and uh, to uh, and uh, Al I've mentioned Al before uh, in our discussion. Uh, him and I will will look at Vimy Ridge and go. There's about fifteen games, like as you said. That it's like there's a movie just in this one hour of this whole you know, yeah. strategic push. Right. Yeah. Or yeah. So, so for both of him and I, um, again, we're kind of like you going, well, it's not out there. If, if it's not out there, we, we better do something about That's it. True. <laughs> That's true. <right. laughs> That's right. <laughs> so uh, that being said, where, um, where could people find you an online presence or website or. Yeah. The, the best place to find me is probably Twitter on Twitter. I'm at D Jack J A C K Thompson. Um, the other, the other easy way to get a hold of me is if you just go to Board Game Geek and look up one of my games, you'll find, you know, my designer link, and you can just geek mail me, right? I'm on every day of my life. I'm on too much. I spend way too much time on Twitter and Board Game Geek. So either of those, you could find me very easily. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been awesome. Really All enjoyed right. chatting with you. Well, that was such a fun conversation, and uh, thank you so much, David, for spending some time and and chatting about board games. And uh, yeah, we're at that point of the episode where I like to say thank you so much for listening. And uh, I'm your host, Norm, and we'll catch you later. This has been an episode of Cardboard Conjecture, and you can find more about the podcast on Twitter at BC Board Gamers, and you can find the podcast on YouTube by searching Cardboard Conjecture and on Board Game Geek Guild number 4045. If you wish to contact the podcast, you can email norm at cardboardconjecture.com. Thanks, eh?